sexual transcendence. Libido as a path of communion. Don't be attached to the world, just be the world. Fully embody all of reality in every moment. So says Ndombe Miyama. Pornography and its privacy, not just a confessional context, but a context for the liberation from the limits of the daily socialization that comes with each culture. Cultures and socializing artifacts that are echoed by those within the culture create and perpetuate boundaries for self-expression, boundaries that limit what kind of connections and interactions one can have with oneself, others, and the environment. One's identity becomes limited to a set of repeated roles which have defined scripts that limit interactions. The sacredness of sex and therein the divine nature of matter, of the body and the non-separateness of oneself and the world is realized in the boundary dissolution of the libido. Pornographic search histories and adult toys such as Bad Dragon and incest role play and age play often involve cultural taboos with a ritualistic context for breaking these taboos. These search histories often involve wild fantasies that most would not attempt or even mention in public, even to close friends. I mentioned this in the case of doujinshi and hentai products, which allow a communion with one's own experience of childhood sexuality. Childhood sexuality, viewed as, in, as an initiatory rite of passage, repossessed from the traumatic sexual experiences of childhood. This rekindling of the child is highlighted by the language of lovers who call each other baby, girl, boy, and boy with an eye. In addition to the language of kinks when they are understood as types of play. This is reminiscent as well of the ritual drama. Pornography-related behavior with its diversity of genres like porn hubs and kiss hentai's categories that range from the concrete role play of sex with a co-worker and extends to the abstract sex with the aliens or dragons. It is also common that with what seems to be higher levels of libidinal energy as the sexual act progresses, notions of what is right, just or polite rapidly diminishes to the point of an orgiastic bliss in which one has no sense of their sexual orientation or sexual preferences. One transcends their psychological boundaries to momentarily experience the transpersonal identity. Like many other spiritual practices, which act as a catalyst for spiritual growth and therein the opportunity for psychological development.
sex and the pornography are seen in a new light or rather the old light which continues the initiatory work of the earlier rite of passage into sexuality as a child, a rite of passage of which pornography is a part for some. Continuing this process with the introduction of sex magic or a link of develop or link of a developmental and or liberatory intention and approach to sex or linked to a developmental or liberatory intention and approach to sex it can result in persistent transcendence of one's ordinary relationship to reality it is common in spiritual paths that an overemphasis of non-attachment to the material the earthly the body and particularly sex and sexuality is made to the point of recommending the entrapping detachment from the worldly. This material detachment is usually based in underdeveloped practice, for often in the later parts of the same path, the divine is defined as present in literally everything. That there is actually nothing mundane in all existence, for it is all sacred. Even in the Bible, in Genesis, when the Elohim create the earth and all its parts, their assessment is that it is good. At no point in the whole Bible do the Elohim ever revoke this innate goodness of all things. Reviewed the body as sacred and sexuality as a spiritual path when bound to liberatory intentions. What emerges is the notion of embodiment. Embodiment or manifestation of the spirit and the spiritual in all areas of one's life, including sexuality. Embodiment involves the integration of higher aspects of oneself into one's daily life so that there is no longer a distinction between the sacred and the mundane between self and other, and ultimately between the self and the divine. For the substance of the boundaries, for the substance of the boundaries is cultural in origin. One is socialized into a sense of separation and further a sense of alienation by the unhealthy aspects of one's culture. The libidinal, that is, energetic, financial gift offerings to sexual, the libidinal offerings, financial offerings, gift offerings to sex, sex workers are as devotional offerings in other spiritual paths. For sexuality as sacred, like all of life, which is fully embodied by the divine, offers a path of communion through intention which turns the orgasm to a, to a living Eucharist. To quote another sacred junkie, you remember that love is the law, love and the will. Now that that rambly mess is over, let's begin a new rambly mess. Ha, ha, ha.
discussing in this short reading is the notion of sacred sexuality and how sexuality itself and thus all sexuality can be seen as sacred, can form a part of liberating oneself from entrapping ways of being. Because we already know from some of my previous writings and our previous discussions here that (laughs) we already know that when we truly ask the question of what sex is we find ourselves in a peculiar predicament because one we have one question we have is the question of the difference between sex and gender sexual identity and gender identity and the deeper or more abstract question of what exactly about any behavior makes it sexual right what is it about any feature of the body that makes it erotic in any way let alone any feature of the body what is it about anything at all because people have fetishes for brick walls what is it exactly about a brick wall that would make a brick wall sexually arousing to someone? Is there something akin to Dan Harmon's explanation of fetishes that at some point in childhood your sexuality switches on and whatever you're looking at or doing at the time basically becomes your fetish. (laughs) So if you're under the table and your aunts or parents or whoever adults that are around the kitchen are barefoot and you're under the kitchen table playing and all you're seeing are these feet and then the lightning goes off you turn on as a sexual being and since you are looking at feet well feet are now your thing (laughs) Hmm. but yes the interesting about the sacredness of sexuality is that is that when you first begin on the spiritual path, there's often the seemingly universal teaching about injunctions against sexual immorality, but the nature of that sexual immorality is never properly described. If translated in more contemporary terms, it would be moral sex is consensual sex and basically do not sexually assault someone and in addition to not sexually assaulting anyone the sexual assault being an immoral form of sex 
it would be also importantly do not use sex since sex is sacred is one of the many sacred things do not use sacred to create suffering and that's sort of the immorality or sexual immorality is described in the sense there are many ways by which we can cause suffering through sexual activity both for ourselves and others for example something that is often done that is actual sexual immorality is that you're fed this idea of guilt that is guilt and shame that is tied to the body and specifically genitalia and sexual activity we are taught that it is somehow something you are not meant to share openly it is something of how do i put it it is somehow some kind of a special part of the body that is completely set apart from every other body part so there's this disassociation from our genitals and it's treated as something overly sacred or more sacred than other parts of the body because of its ability to basically one it's part in the procreation process but viewed holistically you can obviously see how the rest of the body is entirely involved in this process and it's not just the genitals that are directly it's just the genitals that are directly involved there are no there are no genitals stranded alone in isolation in the world making children it's always people who are acting it's always human beings in their completeness engaging in these acts and producing children and they're not producing children they're producing states of higher consciousness states of transcendence and because i think the shame and the guilt comes from the idea that most people only experience the mystical the transcendent ever so rarely <laughs> they experience it so rarely or rather they're ignorant to the constant presence of the transcendent in everyday life that it seems as if it's a special thing that is set apart from everything else that you are somehow dealing with the divine things for which man or men or human beings in general are never worthy of it is something received by the grace of some deity or other that such things occur they do not occur naturally in the world and for atheists <laughs>
and for atheists it's just nothing special but it's so addicting because I think for the atheist who has no spiritual practice it is even less likely that they're experiencing the mystical because they do no spiritual practice so their chances are lower in most cases and because of the lower chances they sort of seek the sacred in the material although they don't call it in such names they seek it in the natural world and often like most people we seek the sacred outside of ourselves until we realize this is not possible there is no sacred outside of ourselves <laughs> So, what we have with all this guilt and shame and the rareness of transcendence, and with more guilt and shame, it becomes even rarer. It is odd that the people in power have, in a way, brainwashed you into a way of into a way that basically privatizes the transcendent as something only for the special few, for the special few who truly deserve it, who truly deserve it because of their level of obedience, their level of obedience to the authority of whatever kind. Whereas on the contrary, it is very mechanical. And what I pros what I propose from the view of sacred sexuality is that all spirituality can be viewed as sexual. Sexual in the sense that if you basically use physical stimulation without any intention whatsoever, you can quite mechanically or organically produce an orgasm. With really, without effort, without trying, it's an automatic response that occurs. And so with that in mind, then, spirituality, the whole spectrum of it, through pranayama or breathwork practices, you can basically do very simple deep breathing and experience the transcendence quite mechanically or organically. And again, with meditation, what you're doing in meditation is basically all the initial stuff, all the concentration, what is typically defined as the meditation practice, <laughs> right? The concentration part, all it is, is just tools for quieting the mind. Once your mind is quiet, put down the tool for quieting your mind and just focus on the quiet mind, right? Just be. 
just exist in the quietness of the mind, just be in silence. And just lying there or sitting there, not thinking, very still, not doing anything, not even thinking, <laughs> you again encounter the transcendent. This immense inactivity or very simple activity, these very well-perfected technologies result in direct encounters with the infinite, which is just oneself, really. And it doesn't take much. <laughs> you see. But we return to our notion of sexuality. Is that somehow, because of the shame and the guilt, is this idea that somehow sexuality or physical pleasures in general, material, the body, is somehow not divine. <laughs> and this weird duality of natural and supernatural, of sacred and mundane. Right? These are peculiar terms, peculiar perspectives, because Because they separate things which it denies the sacred and the mundane and it and it denies the mundaneness of sacred phenomena because actually you can say what you have I think in the Christian texts what you have mainly is this idea of higher levels, right? The most high is this idea of... <laughs> the most high is how they define God, right? And in the yogic texts, in the Buddhist texts, it's in the yogic texts mainly, it's the supra-mundane, the most low, something that is so basic to all of reality that no reality exists apart from it. It is what makes all reality real. It is so basic, so common, so ubiquitous, so mundane, <laughs> that it is beyond anything that is mundane. It is truly mundane because there is nothing else but it. It is so obvious that you forget it there. Because the basic revolution of higher consciousness when it comes in spiritual development and the subsequent psychological development is that it's like discovering air, pretty much. At some point, you didn't know there was air, right? You can't really remember a point when you didn't know there was air. 
where eventually someone told you that, well, all around us is this gas that you can't see. We breathe it all the time and we need it to be alive. And then they defined oxygen. And now you have this very abstract idea of oxygen. (laughs) But you live in it the way a fish that has been in the ocean its whole life won't know what you're talking about when you talk about air or land to them. They'll have no clue of such a thing. Less, they'll have even less of a clue, which is the metaphors trying to get at. They'll have no clue what water is. It's the most obvious thing. It's the only thing their entire world is made up of and they can't live separate from it. But to point it out, to say that it is there, is an odd predicament because rather than saying that God exists or God is there, it's rather, it's that which makes thereness possible. It is the there. (laughs) It is the context of all contexts. That which makes thereness possible. Right? And so, this bizarre separation. And so, this bizarre separation between sacred and mundane is odd because if in the beginning there was God then God is the most natural thing there is so natural that it created nature And this is where you get sort of the fuller idea of supernatural. It's no, no, no. It's it's the thing that was here before anything else was here. It's truly, truly natural. And so now when we forget this, and we sort of, in the beginning of our path, we often think we they're stuck in this duality and we push away all the earthliness and cling to everything sacred and divine or rather our idea our concepts of what is sacred and divine and we reach out towards that and reject our humanity and reject our worldliness reject our incarnation reject our sexuality and so on but later on what you quickly realized well in my path what I found out to be true is in fact that is the basic teaching that 
wisdom should proceed. Yes, wisdom should proceed good actions. Because once you see the world correctly, you will then naturally act appropriately. You will understand in very simple terms. It'll be clear to you as the ground beneath you that creating suffering is just not beneficial to yourself or anyone else. Right? It'll be very, very clear to you. And having this clarity of vision or clairvoyance, clarity of vision, this clear seeing, you need not have done any ethical code of conduct, right? Moral practices and so on, or followed any commandments. The usefulness of the moral practices is twofold. The usefulness of the moral practices is twofold. It is in one part meant to, in yogic terms, keep you from creating more karma so that you can practice. Which means, in simpler terms, it's to keep you from making a mess of your life so you have more time to just meditate, right? If you don't get yourself into legal problems, relationship problems, causing suffering to others, causing suffering to yourself, getting overly invested in unnecessary behaviors that basically hinder you on the path consider the thing of food right okay if you're too busy eating you have no time to meditate if you eat too much you can't really meditate properly if you're starving yourself too much you can't really meditate properly <laughs> if you're not feeding your children you're too busy worried about your children you can't meditate properly <laughs> If someone around you is suffering or you're causing someone else suffering, can't meditate properly, you're too busy thinking about your suffering to actually concentrate on the spiritual practice and just get the work done, right? You will not be able to calm your mind. It will be too busy with all your suffering. <laughs> So all those commandments are made, all those commandments are made so you stop creating the suffering, you stop creating this mental dis-ease, this lack of calm, this lack of quietude, all this monkey mind and distractions. 
So what you're doing is preparatory practices, basically. You do yama and niyama, as it's called, basically. You refrain from doing activities that will make your mind too busy (laughs) during your meditation. So you manage your environment in such a way that it supports a quieter mind and an easier practice that is undisturbed and undistracted. Having done that, (laughs) having done that, you then do everything for your body now, right? Pranayama and asana. Right, what is typically called Hatha Yoga Asana, which is typically called yoga in all these yoga studios, right? That's meant to keep your body fit and relaxed and at ease so you can sit in meditation for long periods. That's what it's for. It's another preparatory practice. Pranayama is also the same way. Breathing practices already calm the mind, they calm the body, so it's easier to meditate and concentrate. And they also produce higher states of consciousness and bliss and so on, which makes tapping into higher meditative states all that easier. that much easier right and so already then after doing that you then enter into concentration right well first you sort of focus your mind on an object usually one outside of yourself but you focus like let's do the mantra for example First, you would say the mantra out loud and you'll focus on that. Similar with prayers, you'll say the prayer out loud and you concentrate on the prayer as you say it. And so on for the session you have set aside for your spiritual practice. After a while, you'll start doing it. I think that's, yeah, Garana is saying it out loud. Diana is then saying it internally. Now you are praying in your mind and you're saying the mantra in your mind internally and your phrase or whatever you have chosen to repeat that is simple and not too distracting. You're saying it repeatedly over and over and you're concentrating on it. All this time your concentration is improving, all this time you're getting better and better at quieting the mind, and so on. After a while of this, you then enter into, you then enter into Samadhi. Samadhi now, which is typically called concentration, which is concentration proper. absorption is when you then remove all the concentration practices 
the mind is now fully quiet and you enter into the quietness of the mind and you rest there and you maintain silence this is the concentration now maintaining the silence this is actual actual meditation <laughs> this is now proper proper meditation and the more and more you do it the more it spreads it lasts longer after your practice and then you integrate it into all areas of your life until you are always naturally meditated and you always have a calm mind it's pretty much that simple well developed technology that doesn't need much fiddling around you just do it and you keep doing it and it works very quickly if it works for you it will work within 2 weeks if it doesn't work try something else you don't need to spend 40 years doing a practice that's showing very little results in your life it is not good to do one practice over another they're all tools and the one that gets you there is the best tool for you and so our sacredness of sexuality our sexuality is that having gone now on the path having refrained from sexuality if we did if it is causing distractions during our practice then we would have had to curb our sexuality right if we were too busy too busy addicted to sex too busy involved in our sex life and too distracted then in our practice because of our sexuality then we need to deal with our sexuality as an obstacle to our practice right it is not evil <laughs> it is not evil it either supports your practice or it doesn't <laughs> it either supports your practice it has no effect on your practice or it makes your practice more difficult what you want are more and more things that support your practice healthy diets all the other healthy behavior exercising getting enough sleep if you have mental disorders right mental health issues you want all of those sorted out you can't really meditate if you're depressed you definitely can't meditate if you're manic <laughs> anxiety will produce constant anxiety thought anxiety thoughts so you won't be able to meditate all those things fuck with your sleep so you won't be able to meditate again <laughs> right all these aspects of your lifestyle all these aspects of your life it's not good it's not evil either supports your practice or it undermines your practice and that's the reason why they put these as they were they weren't particularly good or evil in any way 
It's only this dualistic approach to morality that's the problem. And yes, on the other side of the morality of these things, the importance of the morality as well is in a form of compassion practice. These were meant for integration and embodiment. So your meditation or your meditative states, your connection to God, your knowledge of yourself, of who you truly are, right? All these things are not just special things that happen only on rare occasions during your practice. They're not meant to be solely special things that benefit only you. They're meant to be things that benefit the entire planet, basically, the entire species, those around you. You are not basically meditating just for your own good. This is the compassion practice to basically be an activist, to integrate these things into, to integrate the spiritual development through psychological development so it's present in all areas of your life. This is also the goal. So you don't have this bizarre duality between the divine and the mundane. Because it's all one. As Maharaji always said, in Karoli Baba always, it's all one. As every bloody person who's ever gotten enlightened has pretty much said, it's all one. <laughs> right? So you stop it with all the dualistic nonsense and so viewing our sexuality in that light now the interesting thing about actually when you do get initiated into enlightenment right or you realize that you are enlightened and then you start mastering and maturing your enlightenment to its completeness in the infinite. What you have basically is your relationships with other people improve. Your relationship to sexuality will change, right? How it changes is not something you can determine beforehand. But basically, a simple algorithm is that doing things... No, we're worried. So, what we have is that... Main thing that changes about sexuality is our relationship to it. doing sexual activities that produce suffering or doing anything that produces suffering 
will become more and more salient to you, more and more significant. You will notice more and more what the causes are of suffering and you'll do more and more to remove those things out of your life. Right? The origin of removing toxic people out of your life is more or less this realization that certain things are causing suffering. Suffering is less and less bearable as you become more and more enlightened because as you become more and more enlightened, you have less perceptual filters. You basically become more and more sensitive to your environment and what happens around you on a very cosmic scale. So when you're basically like, how can I put it? You basically have adult levels of knowledge, but you're a child. <laughs> right? You have, you're a child, but you're psychologically mature as well. So you relate to things like that. So things that make you sad, you will notice them very quickly. You will notice the things that make you sad and you'll want to get rid of them or get away from them. People who often become enlightened result in radical changes to their way of life very very significant changes in their lifestyle changes to their identity to their appearance to their name they basically go through a trans transition a social transition that is very similar to the social transition of transgender individuals who socially transition. They entirely abandon who they were because they no longer identify with that and they choose to become someone else. But this is not always the case. In my case, it just... It has this weird thing of... You finally find out who you are and you realize that you can change who you are. You can change your identity. So when you choose an identity, you're choosing it freely, even, even if it is an affirmation of your parents' name and so on. In my case, I had rejected my own name and used many pseudonyms, so sort of returning to a deeper and personal meaning of my given name was how I sort of transitioned. It led into deeper embodiment and what Ramdas calls honoring your incarnation. I basically stopped running away from who I was and who I am, but yes. And so then, what 
is a change of our relationship to sexuality due to a change of our relationship to suffering. So sexual activities, things that are sexually immoral, are things that we will do less and less. In some cases, if we do not, the only exception to this rule is that some people get spiritually developed without integrating that spiritual development into psychological development. So morally, they remain the same, (laughs) pretty much. It's like this. Morally, you remain the same, which is... How can I say it? You remain morally the same as you were before you were enlightened. But now you have this enlightened vantage point of experience sort of overlapping on top of it. So your morality, in most cases, matured until... You were a teenager, and since you were a teenager, you didn't continue to develop develop in any major way through your adulthood. Adult development is something you really have to do on purpose, with proper practices, with full intention and consciousness. Without this, you don't really get far with it. It doesn't really change that much. Between years or so, through a year, it doesn't really change that much, although it changes gradually over decades and so on and so forth. You continue to develop, but radical adult development at the pace of which you experience from childhood or since you were a neonate all the way since you were a teenager that speed that pace of development is often never reached until one actively seeks out to create and maintain such a habit of development And so what happens when you don't integrate your spiritual development is that you end up in a position of power and usually you use that position of power to satisfy your personal desires, right? You create suffering. This is what happens. Your enlightenment actually results in you being freer and more capable and less inhibited in creating suffering, in doing what you were doing. (laughs) Right? So if before you were sort of limited to saying, oh, no incest or no pedophilia or sleeping with many women is a problem or sleeping with many 
many men what is a problem or any partners is a problem and so on and so forth you will be liberated for any such moral limitation and you will basically do whatever you want <laughs> you will do whatever you want which is what all enlightened people do but the difference between those who integrate and those who don't is that those who integrate still acknowledge that there are other people there and they do not use other people strictly for their own purposes right they acknowledge their own freedom and the freedom of others their own enlightenment and enlightened status and attainments are also allotted to others not literally but so much in the view of viewing others as equals even if developmentally they are at different stages we look at each other as fundamentally equal this is the thing if you don't integrate you view yourself as divine and increasingly more divine and more divine and more of an authority who rules over humanity who transcends being human and the limitations of human society instead of viewing yourself as how can i put it truly human or having truly realized what it means to be human you grow deeper and deeper into your humanity and you realize the infinite potential of all human beings and you view people in a similar way that you view yourself you say this person is capable of being as enlightened as i am so you treat them as fully enlightened as equal to you <laughs> in a sense in a sense as your suffering diminishes as you become more sensitive what happens is the sex gets better <laughs> it gets okay initially that's how you view it the sex gets better initially it's more pleasurable than ever before because you're more capable of being vulnerable you're more at peace and able to concentrate and be in the moment during sex you're more integrated into your body you're more intimate with your body with the world with your partner
So when I say that you become more sensitive, I mean physically, psychologically, spiritually, and divinely more sensitive. Your entire being opens up as you develop further and further. But the thing is, the same way the suffering diminishes and even pain goes away, labels like pleasure, these concepts, both positive and negative, all these labels, these values and meanings that we have, they loosen their grip on us. So now you don't experience your idea of sex or your idea of certain things, but rather what you experience is just the pure sensations. Even saying pure sensations is saying too much. You experience experience. <laughs> you are fully there and it hits you in its totality and you feel it. You really don't hold back and you don't diminish it in any way unless you choose to. So, what seemed pleasurable seems intense, right? You experience varying degrees of intensity and this sort of textures, things that are, how can I say it? There are intensities that are attractive and intensities that are aversive. Right? Your physical body will react to being assaulted by pulling back or attacking. It'll react aversively. And in most cases, your basic responses, if you choose to maintain them, your flight and fight and so on, will remain intact if you keep them. This is actually, if you choose to preserve your ego, and this is the integration process, where you basically recreate an ego that is more in line with your current stage of enlightenment basically creates an enlightened ego <laughs> so you can fully function in all areas of your life because the ego is also an art form in itself identity is something you can beautifully play with often when people get enlightened forget that once they realize life is meaningless and it's a game they forget that they can easily choose to just enjoy themselves. <laughs> right. Oh, it's a game. Oh, it's not really real. Oh, it's a dream, you say. Oh, there's nothing really at stake. Oh, it's safe. Oh, we are in fact immortal. 
Oh, you can lose your physical body and continue on other planes in your other bodies? Oh, I'm not afraid of death. Oh, I don't feel pain anymore. <laughs> oh, 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 ah, so, ah, so. This means I can play. This means I can actually live, truly, fully live with your entire being without holding anything back, without any reservations. You can do anything you want you can even not want. You can even not want to do anything. You can do nothing. You can just be. Just being and not doing. So many options. So many options. It's play. It's the Leela. It's the dance, it's the And so the sacredness of sexuality, that is our apparent theme. <laughs> that is our apparent theme. sacredness of sexuality easily all things that do this basic process of support your spiritual practice or that calm your mind that produce higher states of consciousness everything every activity done with full presence and concentration with the embodiment of the meditative state. All of them through guided intention, through well-directed intention, all of it can become a means of transcendence. Mindful eating, for example, do almost any activity with full presence, with mindfulness, and it would be transformative for you. <laughs> and it would be transformative. Although there are few things that are better not done that way. But it's worth the try. It's worth the try. <laughs>